Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. I've been looking forward to this podcast for some time. Mickey Edwards is a legendary figure in the conservative movement. He represented Oklahoma's 5th Congressional District in Congress for 16 years. He was a member of the Republican leadership in the House and chairman of the party's policy committee in the House of Representatives. And beyond that, he was an early chairman of the organization that ran CPAC. Um, yeah, the American Conservative Union, also one of the founders of the Heritage Foundation. Any history of the conservative movement has to include Mickey Edwards. And yet Mickey Edwards is here on the Bulwark podcast. Mickey, good to talk with you. Yeah, thanks, Charlie. Glad to be with you. Well, I wanted to talk about a piece you wrote earlier this week after this uh, weekend's podcast, Mugged by Reality. You wrote, as the chairman of CPAC during the rise of Ronald Reagan, I should have seen the grotesque display of this year's CPAC coming. I failed to do so. And as I mentioned right before we started the podcast, I have been wrestling with this as as, as well. Uh, you know, what did we miss? How did we not see it coming? Or did we see it coming? And did we just ignore it. And I think you have a, a somewhat different historical perspective, but let me just read the beginning of this uh, piece in the Bulwark, which I strongly recommend it. Several years ago, I was mugged and robbed as I took an early morning walk through Louis Armstrong Park in New Orleans. I should have been paying more attention, been more alert, but instead I was taken by surprise and had the bruises to show for it. That event came to mind as I watched this year's Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC. If someone had told me 40 years ago that CPAC attendees would raucously cheer a United States senator bragging about his effort to overturn a presidential election or brazenly worship a literal golden idol in the shape of a failed presidential candidate, I never would have believed them, but maybe I should have seen it coming. Yeah, no, uh, that's I, I've, I've thought of about that for some time. So. Let's let's talk about this. Let's let's and I want you know most of our podcasts deal with current events, but I, but I want to really do a deep dive into the history back into the seventies and the nineteen eighties, because there were warning signs even back then that there was an element of the party that was headed off in a very different direction, weren't there? Well, it, it was, and probably the most visible part of that was, was Pat Buchanan. Uh, and there had been the John Birch Society, uh, you know, 60s. Yeah. But what, one of the things, so I, I talked about what happened at CPAC, uh, but one of the things that really, uh, struck me and I remember, so for five years, I think it was, mm -hmm. I was the national chairman of the American conservative union and the, uh, conservative movement had always been, uh, conservative Republicans ha had always been about national defense, about not having taxes too high or too much regulation that we thought were, were harmful to the economy. But we were using a direct mail house of conservatives uh, to do fundraising letters for uh, ACU. And every time that they came with one, it was full of all of this new stuff about social issues, cultural issues. Uh, and I always just edited the stuff out when, you know, put it back to the traditional values. Uh, but I, it dawned, didn't dawn me. There's some people out here who are singing from a different songbook. And I, I but it, it just didn't really register. And then later, uh, Many years later, uh, 
I wrote a book uh, called Reclaiming Conservatism. This was, I think it came out in 2008 from Oxford University Press and tracing how the conservative movement had changed. And, and when, when that happened, Charlie, I, uh, asked to go speak the, you know, my, my publisher wanted me to speak. I was doing uh, talks all over the country and they wanted me to go talk to the Heritage Foundation because I had been one of their founders. And they said, no, they, they said, no, I couldn't go there. So, I, I talked to Ed Fulner, who was head of, uh, so, you know, I, I helped found this organization. <laughs> Tell me that I'm, I can't come talk about my book. So they relented and I, and I went. But here's what happened. A woman uh, introduced me. She, she had worked for me at the uh, ACU, the American Conservative Union. And because there was a pretty good sized crowd uh, and many of those people were not familiar with the Heritage Foundation, uh, she started out by saying, well, let me tell you about the Heritage Foundation and started going through uh, the mission statement. Part of the mission statement was that preserving traditional social values. And I said, well, wait, wait, wait. And I helped write the mission statement. That wasn't in there. And I had checked and I said, that stuff was added 20 years later. Uh, and um, so the culture war stuff came long time after the founding of these organizations. This was this was so, not central in the beginning. It was not. But uh, one of the things, for example, um, you know, the, most of the conservatives, uh, you know, were arguing the pro-life position. Um, and suddenly, because of partly of Henry Hyde, uh, but also Chris Smith from New Jersey, uh, these issues, these social cultural issues, including abortion, were brought up with whatever bill we were talking about. It was, uh, if you talked about a defense bill, it was in there, foreign aid, it was in there. If you talked about almost any issue, um, it would turn into the, the culture wars. And so, and that was while I was in the house. So, you know, these things were beginning to show up in little bitty pieces here and there. Uh, and I guess I just thought, well, that's just Henry or that's Chris or that's, you know, this direct mail house or whatever. And it never occurred to me how big that movement was and how uh, how strong it was and how unrelenting it was. You know, I, I've I've tried to explain this as well to folks, people who will say, well, you, you know, it was always there and you should have seen it and you were blind. And I said, well, there's two things. N number one, you always recognize there were there was a recessive gene on the right, you know, whether it was the John Birch Society or the racists or the, the people who wanted to emphasize all the, the, the super cultural issues, but they were never dominant. And so you were it was OK to kind of look the other way, to kind of ignore them like your, you know, like your uncle at, at Thanksgiving and also there was room for difference of opinion. You were not required to be an absolute lockstep on all of these these issues. There was no cult of personality. I mean, conservatives liked Ronald Reagan, but there was no cult of personality like we have with Trump. So you could you could ignore, overlook some of the folks in at the edge of the fever swamps, but also uh, you weren't required to embrace them. Do, do you agree with that or? 
Yeah, I, I agree. And not only that, but a lot of the most prominent uh, voices in conservatism actually were pushing back against that. Uh, for example, Bill Buckley at uh, National Review uh, was pushing back against things like the John Birch Society. And uh, so, so the even the conservative mainstream uh, was saying this stuff is nutty and that was that was dominant so so these things were fringe then and somehow they have become over time the dominant force uh, in the conservative forces okay so let's go back a little bit in history you uh, were active in ronald reagan's first campaign well his successful campaign not his first campaign his successful right. campaign in in 1980 so you were part of the reagan world back in 1980 right and you you had supported him during the primary and during the general election. And and if I remember correctly, at one time, um, the American Conservative Union, which runs CPAC, and this is going to strike some people as counterintuitive, was it was originally designed to kind of keep conservatism sane, wasn't it? it one of the things was it was it was in the business of ideological hygiene, keeping the crackpots out. I mean, it became later the Star Wars bar scene, et cetera. But originally it was very, very much mainstream conservatism. Well, yeah, it was not only mainstream conservatism, but when Reagan was elected and I was chairman of ACU uh, and, uh, you know, we, we were the dominant force in putting on the conservative political action conference, uh, I invited Reagan to speak uh, and, and he came and we had the big ballroom at the Mayflower Hotel uh, packed everybody. It was black tie. Uh, it was... Uh, you know, really, you know, the, the top conservatives uh, from around the country. Uh, and, and it wasn't crazy. It, it, was, it was just traditional um, Republican conservative, you know, stuff about, you know, again, strong defense and, and, you know, keeping spending under control. It was, it was, that's all it was. And uh, you could have, it, it could have been a meeting of the Chamber of Commerce. It could have been a meeting of, uh, you know, almost any kind of a sane uh, civic organization, uh, but with a political point of view. Uh, it wasn't anything like this one where uh, people were standing, you know, it was amazing, you know, people who proclaim their religious faith, uh, but who were standing by a golden idol. The golden idol, you know, was of Donald Trump. I mean, it, it was nothing like what we have seen for not just this year, but for the last four or five years. So let's try to trace this line, how we got from there to, to here. And you mentioned direct mail. Um, there's a character who uh, I think some, a lot of people have forgotten in American politics, but was really, really central. Richard Vigory, who was this direct mail entrepreneur who was, as you, as you point out, he was the guy that, that sent out the direct mail ap appeals for just about everybody on the right. Yeah, you used him at the American Conservative Union. And he was very powerful and very influential and was one of the people um, who kind of introduced these hot button, what we would call sort of Internet meme type things, you know, with the, with the rhetoric going for the the, uh, the 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 culture war references. And th this was one of the moments where you started to see a, a different tone on the right. Just talk to me about Richard Vigory and his influence. Well, Ray Richard was... Uh... He was an entrepreneur, but he was also an innovator. Uh, at that time, 
uh, direct mail campaigning uh, was not all that uh, all that popular. And uh, so he had created this big uh, operation with his company where almost every conservative candidate in the country, I was one of them, uh, and conservative organizations, you know, used Richard Vigory and, and uh, for direct mail. And we did a lot of direct mail campaigning. Part of the deal with with him was that we had to, whatever money he we raised through his direct mail had to be plowed back into more of his direct mail, which was then used, you know, not just to raise money, but to campaign and you campaigned by direct mail. Uh, and so he became, he and, and a couple of the pollsters uh, who were coming up uh, like Arthur Finkelstein and some others at the same time uh, were really beginning to push candidates toward the right and, and toward uh, more hardline campaigning. Uh, and again, you know, I, I did my best. I was resisting it. I would change it, but uh, they were becoming real powers uh, in the conservative movement and they were changing it because they, they had decided that it was the nastier stuff that was going to bring in the money. And, uh, uh, and they pursued that relentlessly. Yeah. I mean, so conservatives had been focused, as you point out, on, you know, keeping taxes low, regulation within bounds, adequately funding national defense, you know, think values like prudence and skepticism in the face of proposals for sweeping overhauls. But, but, uh, this was being displaced by the new, you know, social, uh, cultural warfare lines. Uh, I had forgotten that it was Vigory who assembled a group of, uh, folks, that was to become the moral majority. Uh, so, I mean, the, the moral majority, the Christian coalition, these became major forces on the right uh, during the 1980s. And you write, again, new and narrower forces were coming to the fore. I still didn't see the larger displacement of traditional conservatism that was gaining steam. Yeah, well, one of the things that I pointed out, so... Richard Vigory had a meeting at his house in McLean, uh, Virginia, and there were, I was there, and uh, uh, a lot of the leaders of the conservative movement were there, um, and, but it, it was a very mixed bag. So it was Paul Weirich, who was Greek Orthodox, mm-hmm. Howie Phillips, who's Jewish, I'm Jewish, uh, you know, and, and other, and, and then you know, uh, Eddie McIntyre, who worked for mm-hmm. uh, a Christian organization. Uh, and so what came out of that, it, it was said, it, it was, how can we get conservative people who, who are, you know, in their own mindsets are conservatives and they tend to be churchgoers or synagogue goers or whatever. How can we get them to focus on understanding that if you are of a conservative mindset, you ought to be voting Republican, not Democrat. And that's what it was for. And out of that, you know, grew the moral majority. But as I pointed out in my article, Charlie, the moral majority was not about a religion. It was not about any one religion. And then the Christian coalition came around, came along later, and it was very overtly and very narrowly uh, targeted uh, and changed the dynamic a lot. Uh, And so, uh, you know, this was the beginning and I hadn't seen where it was going to go. 
And then, of course, we had the rise of the entertainment wing of the Republican Party. And I always remind people that during the Reagan era, there was really no conservative talk radio. The Fairness Doctrine had not been repealed. Uh, when Ronald Reagan was president, there was no Fox News. There wasn't this huge infrastructure uh, of, uh, of a conservative ecosystem. So then we have the phenomenon of Newt Gingrich, who made politics into warfare, Rush Limbaugh, who uh, was really the founder of the of the conservative ecosystem. Talk to me about how that changed conservative politics. Well, I mean, I, I have talked in terms of, of Congress and what's changed to make Congress as uh, as dysfunctional as it is. Uh, that was largely Newt Gingrich. Uh, Newt really, Newt, Newt gets uh, attacked for being a conservative. Well, he is a kind of in a crazy extreme way, but, but, but he's really more about just power. And uh, he introduced a really uh, negative, uh, no holds barred and, and uh, aggressive kind of campaigning, uh, arguing that poli- this was before he became speaker as he ro- rose you know, through the ranks to become the Republican leader, uh, and um, the idea was that it was nonstop political warfare. He used his an organization that he was chairing to send material all over the country to political candidates on the right, you know, about here's how to attack your opponent, here are the names to call your opponent. Uh, and so um, he then he was aided by Rush Limbaugh, who echoed everything he said on the air. And there were there were also, um, you know, people in the uh, in the press who uh, who promoted him. Uh, there was the, this Evans and Novak column sure. uh, that was very prominent then. Huge back then. And, back uh, then. and Bob, yeah, Bob Novak, you, you know, everything that Newt said, he echoed. Um, and so um, Newt gets a lot of blame for also for uh the extreme turn uh that the right has taken and and, and then of course as you point out you had that nexus uh between gingrich and uh rush limbaugh i think it's interesting to remember that after republicans took control of congress back in 1994 the freshman class brought in rush limbaugh to to speak um of course there's been a lot of reevaluations of rush limbaugh's contributions uh to the conservative movement. So, wh- what what would your summary be looking back on? What what role Rush Limbaugh played? I, I would argue that he really was the architect of the overthrow of the conservative movements. Um, shall we say mainstream by the entertainment wing of the conservative movement, uh, and that as a result, he made the conservative movement uh, dumber crueler and uh, soften the ground up for what we have right now with Donald Trump? Well, he, he I, I would say that Limbaugh was a forerunner of, uh, of Fox News that long time ago, there had been a, uh, a person who had a show similar named uh, Joe Pine, uh, but it didn't have nearly the audience or resonance that, that Lim- Limbaugh did. Right. And by being, you know, so nasty uh he you know it was entertaining it was entertaining this is not the way people talked uh and he made nasty nasty entertaining i mean that was one of the things he he did did. it was he made people like developed a taste for that sort of thing right so things like uh you know the term the feminazis right 
and so people who had kind of a basic conservative uh, instinct, which it was in many cases is not a pro anything philosophy, more it's more an anti-liberal philosophy, you know, it's anti the left. Uh, and he was using these uh, demonizing terms, uh, but in, in a funny way, he, he was, uh, he, he was, you know, people yeah. would tune in and he built this huge audience. Uh, and the people who would listen to Limbaugh were not people who were, they, okay, listen to Limbaugh. And then later you're going to, you know, turn on the news and you're going to hear what, what, what's, what's Walter Cronkite got to say and all this stuff. You know, it became like a cult. It became a cult of people who uh, were ditto heads, you know, ditto to whatever uh, Rush Limbaugh said. Um, and that has magnified. So to the, that was a forerunner of Sean Hannity. It's a forerunner of a lot of the people. Bill O'Reilly for a while until he, he had to step aside. Um, and so, Charlie, can I, I add one thing here? Sure. So uh, Bill O'Reilly was one of my students when I taught at Harvard. Really? And, and he was not this way at all. He was just a guy who was trying to get famous and he was trying to find a niche to use. What niche can, can I make my own? And, and he did this. And I was, um, I was on a conservative talk show one time uh, and the host, a woman, I'm not going to call her out specifically, but let's say one of the better known uh, female conservative uh, talk people, um, we, we were, I was on her show cause I had to attack Rush Limbaugh. So she invited me on the program to kind of debate me on it. And during a commercial, she said, Oh, come on, Mickey, you know, it's just entertainment, right? And I said, yeah, but your audience doesn't know it's just entertainment. And that was, so there's also a cynicism here. Yeah. Rush Limbaugh became very, very wealthy doing this. Uh, and, uh, so there are a lot of people who have just played into the nastier instincts of the populace in order to make them wealthy. You know, I, I was a talk show host for, for more than 20 years and I all, I always push back against people who say, well, you just say this because, you know, this is what you have to say, or because you're trying to be entertaining. I, by the way, I didn't mind being entertaining if I, on, on occasion. I mean, I didn't think it was a bad thing. But I, I say, no, no, I, I think that most people believe, I believe what I'm saying. I believe most of them believe what they're saying, I know, but I no longer think so. Now I, I think you are seeing over and over again this deep cynicism, the way in which the business model is driving it. And the story you just told about the, they, you know, they take the camera goes off, they take the microphone off and they go, oh, man, now I need to take a bath or I need to take a shower. See, that's uh, that's been one of the real turns. So you wrote a book, you know, Reclaiming Conservatism in 2000. It was published in 2008. So right. you saw that you, you say you should have seen it coming, but you didn't. But actually, you did. You saw it coming about a decade before I did. So what was it that made you write that in 2008? What was your point where you looked around and said, what the hell's going on here? What's going on with my fellow Republicans? Well, it, it was the dominance of the, the social and cultural issues. And I, I had actually gone back in, in that book. 
I went back to every Republican National Convention platform uh, since I think I started in 1974 or 76 and traced how it had changed every four years uh, and was now talking about different issues. Um, So I, I had seen that, but that was... Even then, when I, so I didn't really see it. I'd like to take credit, and I thank you. But uh, but but what had what I didn't see, and I don't think I would have predicted the rise of a single individual who would have everybody fall in line uh, the the way no. people have fallen in line behind Trump. Because when I was in the, in the House and I was in the Republican leadership and chairman of the Policy Committee. And we've already talked about, I was very close to Ronald Reagan. Um, you know, I was with him in his the hotel room in New Hampshire when he won that primary. I called him at his home uh, in California to get into the, his campaign in the first place. Uh, so I was close to him. And yet, as one of the Republican leaders, when he was president, I voted against him a lot. <laughs> you know, I, um, there were a lot, many times I, I spoke on the floor against what he was proposing. Uh, and I did it with uh, George H.W. Bush. And, and, you, and you were not excommunicated. Of course. It, it, it was not perceived as a form of heresy where your local party would then censure you for speaking no, out against them. Not, not at all. I mean, you, you, you were expected to do that. There were a lot of conservatives who, who on some things did not support uh, what either Reagan did or later what, what Bush did. Uh, and, um, and we were very open about it. And, uh, Reagan's response would be, well, I have to sit down with you guys and we have to talk about it and see if we can negotiate or, you know, or, okay, you know, uh, I'll have to change on this. I met with Reagan one time because people in his administration were trying to cut uh, funding for education, for higher education. And I had a problem with that. And so I went around the Department of Education, went around the budget director and went directly to Reagan and got him to change it. Well, today that wouldn't work. I mean, you know, it was today it's a cult around one person and whatever he says goes. So on this this theme of of should have seen it coming, there are folks on the left who will be listening to this conversation and go, well, of course you should, you should have seen it coming because the Republican Party, the conservative movement, was always a fascist movement. You were always racist. Uh, you go back, there's a straight line from Ronald Reagan to Donald Trump. Donald Trump is just saying out loud the things that all of you Reagan Republicans really believed back in 1980. Now, I completely disagree with that, but I, w- I wanted to just to tee that up for you. I mean, because you've heard this, right? It's that, <laughs> is that, is that really Do- Donald Trump is nothing more than the logical development of everything we've been talking about and that we were blind to see that, but we were part of it. We built everything that led to Ronald Reagan. I mean, sorry, that led to, to, to Donald Trump. Right. Uh, well, you know, I worry sometimes uh, when, when I, I'm teaching in Princeton now, but I used to also teach here uh, uh, a number of years ago. And, and Paul Krugman and I, you know, had a, we, we spoke together on a panel. He, his office was down the hall from mine. Uh, we had the same uh, course assistant. And, and so I don't wish him ill. And, and, and yet I, I think if Krugman were to write, I worry that someday he's going to find some kind of a column he can write about something. 
any topic, a World Series or something, where he doesn't include an attack on Ronald Reagan. <laughs> and uh, so it could happen. It, it's just, um, yeah, I, I think there are people on the left who think, well, yeah, who have all, and, and this, by the way, uh, hurts people like you and me because. They, they they hated Reagan. They thought Reagan was evil. They thought Bush was evil. They think, you know, and, and W was evil. And so after a while, people uh, who are conservative start to tune that out. And and they say, you know, we're because, you know, they, they hate all of us anyway. They think we're all crazy. They think all of that. Uh, and and it fuels the, the anti-left uh, part of this. Well, you know, there's a lot of stuff that comes out of the left that is good, that that um, where we can find common ground. Uh, but the, the what happens is with this constant demonization of people who have a different point of view, um, the, at a point people just you know, say, no, that's my enemy. And I, and I, I think it hurts us. Yeah. This is something that, that I have, uh, I've mentioned over the years that the, it is the crying wolf syndrome that if, oh. if you, if you call every conservative, uh, a racist and a fascist, when the real thing comes along, people will just simply roll their eyes and shrug their shoulders yeah. and say, well, you've been saying this forever. You've been saying that every conservative is dumb and racist and fascist. And if you're not willing to d distinguish this, then maybe, you know, we shouldn't listen to you. The other thing is what's interesting about it is that. Uh, that Charlie, let me just say, yeah, I, yeah. I think to some extent it's becoming true. <laughs> well, that's the problem. And that this is the, what, what's what's hard is that it becomes harder to defend as you watch the Republicans get into lockstep behind this, as you see them refuse to deal with white nationalism, as you see them refuse to stand up for democratic norms. You do have to wonder, did they change or were they always like this? So let me just throw that out. I mean, you know, did did these you you've known these people. Um, one of the things that I thought after watching CPAC again, and I'm sure this thoughts crossed your mind. I want to put words in your mouth was like, how was I ever in the room with these people? How did I ever think that we had something in common? Why was I ever allied to these people? But it comes back to that question. Were they always like this or have they changed? Um. I can tell you that the years when I was running CPAC, there were some people like that, but there were very, very few. They, they were a very tiny number uh, and not at all representative of the conservative. Uh, the people who were like that were not representative of the bigger uh, number of people in the conservative movement, but they were always there. There were always some. Sure. So I guess what's happened is that, you know, with the rise of Gingrich and Limbaugh uh, and other forces like that, it magnified the number. Uh, and although I did you notice that the poll that was just taken at CPAC about who people there preferred uh, to have as the Republican nominee did. in four years. I think what Trump got like 55% and 45% wanted somebody else. It, you know, it's not that the people they wanted were any, were any better, but, uh, um, you know, so I, I think maybe, you know, there's some hope that people are not going to just blindly, uh, you know, be part of this cult in the future. Well, 
maybe, but you know, I, I you know, on this question of, of were they the same or have they changed? I, I, I think that there people always have the better angels in the world. They can go in different directions depending on their leadership. And one of the things that changed is that there were always the people out there on the fringes who would go too far, but then you would have the 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 vital center in the Republican Party that would push back against them. Ronald Reagan would stand up and denounce bigotry. Uh, Bob Dole denounced bigotry. The, you know, the Bushes would, would push back against racism or any of those things. So there would be voices that would say, you know, you can't go there. William F. Buckley famously uh, expels the John Birch Society and the Ku Klux Klan. What's different now is there's no one who's willing to do that. Not, not just that they, they, they don't do it and it fails. There's just a complete unwillingness. So, for example, you and I could argue for 20, 30 years that no, the conservatives are not racist, but clearly there's a willingness among conservatives now to tolerate racism, an unwillingness to confront it. And I think that's, believe it or not, that's, that's a real step backwards, I think, from where we might have been 20 years ago. Well, I think it is. Uh, w- but one of the things that, uh, so uh, you take Joe Biden's the stimulus package, which is pretty popular ar- across the country with Republicans as well as, as Democrats. Uh, and so one of the things that has happened uh, years ago when uh, the Tea Party rose to power uh, and people like uh, Dick Armey uh, I think, I, I wasn't there, but, but figured out that, you know, you don't really need to win a, um, the general election because so many congressional districts now are either Republican or Democrat, yeah. overwhelmingly. Well, all you have to do is win the primary. And so now you have all these people. I, I'm convinced that there are a lot of people who uh, voted to, uh, uh, not convict uh, Donald Trump, uh, who uh, voted to uh, challenge the results of the elections. Um, I don't think they all believe that. They're terrified of losing the, their primary. And, and our political party system, the way it is set up, you know, um, it doesn't yeah. really matter whether the majority of people are for you. It's just whether the majority of the people who show up on, a, on election day in a primary, which is a much smaller number, are for you or not. And so um, you got a lot of people here who I think, I'm hoping, maybe I'm being hopeful here, but uh, I think a lot of the members of Congress who've been going along with this stuff don't really believe it, but they're terrified. They're terrified of losing uh, in a primary. So in that case, what you need is not just less racism, less bigotry, but you also need more courage. And we're not seeing a lot of that. Actually, this seems to be the one thing that's motivating Republicans right now, besides the Dr. Seuss culture war stuff, is finding ways to restrict access to the ballot box. And again, it, it... it, it, it's they seem to have internalized the idea that they are better off the fewer people that vote and that they no longer need to persuade new people. They just need to protect their 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 base and that they can they can hold on to power as a minority party. So, you know, this is one of the I mean, there's two elements that are disturbing about the number of Republicans that believe the big lie about the 2020 election that it was stolen. You know, number one, that's a big lie. Number two is they're using this as an excuse to restrict access to the ballot box, which is, again, something that 
is kind of breathtaking to watch uh, the way the party has lined up behind voter restriction as kind of the the emotional core of what they're doing right now. Well, you know, Charlie, maybe, uh, maybe you've run into this too, but over the years, I have so many times uh, heard um, these debates where uh, a Dem- uh, a, Dem- a Democrat, a liberal, w- would talk about the American democracy, and a conservative would say, "We're not a democracy; we're, <laughs> we're a republic." And and, the, and then the the uh, liberal would say, "No, we're a democracy." And of course, the truth is, we're both. Yeah. You know, and uh, uh, and there is this fight now because I think people on the right have been for so long pushing back against democracy. Well, you know, the founders were, were not great champions of democracy. You know, they, they wanted to constrain the the power of the majority, uh, and, you know, within limits uh, that the Constitution created. Um, so there, there has been this strain all along of, uh, yeah, we, we, we want to... Um, uh, we want to make sure that the masses are not able to take us off in some socialist communist direction. And, and that's not new. That's, I think. Actually, that's, that's, a, that's a really good point that the anti-majoritarianism has been, uh, has been something that's been around in the conservative movement for some time. I, I guess I was also disturbed by the fact that they're not only anti-democratic, but when it came to just preserving basic, you know, constitution, the norms of a constitutional republic, which in theory they per- they preferred over democracy, they also weren't willing to defend that either, are they? Well, I think that's true, but I also, again, um, so I, I mean, I've been pr- pretty clear as you are about our disdain for what now is the conservative movement, but I have to say, I mean. Uh, watched AOC the other, you know, on TV, uh, saying, "Well, we should just over override the Senate parliamentarian." You know, first it was, you know, uh, go to the rescission so that um, uh, you you change the rules to do it this way, and then if the rules say now you can't do that, well then oh, just override it. Uh, there was talk about um, if Biden won, you know, uh, it would pack the Supreme Court. Uh, uh, there was all this. so right. the the left has kind of given up on on the norms of uh, liberal democracy too, and and so I, I think what we were seeing is that on the left and the right both people just want the outcome they want they want the the policies they want and they don't really care about the constitution they don't care about process they you know democracy is about process it's not about uh, outcome, but and that's bo- and that's boring compared yeah. to outcomes, right? Well, you can get people's blood fired up with the outcome. Talking about process requires, you know, years of of habits and the development of respect for those habits. And I worry about spiraling radicalization. That is, each side becomes more focused on just winning, um, right. regardless of the process. That the other side will say, "Well, look, look what they do." Why can't exactly. we play by those rules? And, and we're seeing that right now, that every violation of norms then invites the other side to also violate the norm. Well, when Harry Reid did that with the filibuster, mm-hmm. yeah, 
uh, did he ever stop to think someday Mitch McConnell might be the leader in the Senate? Um, I, I remember the debates uh, when I was in the House and Reagan and uh, Bush you know, supported the line item veto, which I was totally against because it, it goes completely against the uh, uh, intent of the Constitution, and I would oppose it. And I would be saying, does it ever occur to you guys someday there may be a Democrat in the White House that the Democrat will use the line item veto against what you want? But um, that, that sort of thinking is gone, you know, both sides now just want whatever they have to do to get the outcome they want. I will say I'm pleased that Joe Biden uh, is in the White House because he has an instinct to follow the procedural norms. And uh, that's why, you know, he he was able on the uh, $15 minimum wage, uh, which I think is way overdue and, and we should have it. But uh, but he basically said, OK, you know, we'll, we'll maybe have to bring that up in a separate kind of bill. Uh, you know, maybe it can't we can't do it in, in this bill. Um, and uh, that that's a strange thing. But I, but I think Biden's got the right instincts. Well, I, I, I agree with you. I, I worry, however, that he's kind of a throwback in that respect, that maybe he's sort of a parenthesis. Um, in the the long going in the, in the in the ongoing um, radicalization of the of the process that that once his generation the people who have that memory that historical memory are gone that that it's going to be just you know whatever it takes to win because as you point out I mean the the question that everyone should always ask when they're about to change the rules is how we feel about this when the other side is in the majority, because the other side will always at some point get back into the majority, especially right now with everything so evenly divided. You know, it doesn't take a great deal of imagination to imagine, well, if, if you change the rules of the Senate now to get this piece of legislation through, what will, how will you feel in 2023 if, in fact, it is Mitch McConnell? who is deciding what the rules of the Senate are going to be. And again, this is not a huge leap um, of, of imagination to to think that through. And yet people seem to be increasingly unwilling to do that. Yeah. Well, and one of the great examples of that has been uh, the use of executive orders going, sure, around, going around Congress. And, and uh, you know, um, what you think the next uh, the other party isn't going to use executive orders when they get the White House. Um, so uh, I, I despair, you know, it's not only what happened to the Republican Party, which is really disgraceful, and the conservative movement, uh, which I don't recognize and don't want to be affiliated with, um, but, but what's happened to a belief in, in constitutional norms, in, in uh, you know, just the democratic process, the deliberative process, the... Uh, um, the system that the founders set up, and they did a lot of things wrong, obviously, but the system they set up for the actual management of government uh, with a democratic system for electing who were who was going to hold office and a, a Republican system uh, with the constraints and rules, uh, I, not very many, you and I, Charlie, may be the last two people who believe in it. Well, it's interesting that I was thinking as you were saying that, that, 
that in theory, if somebody said, you know, that all of these norms are very, very fragile, that, you know, 20, 30 years ago, we all would have said, well, yes, we know that. But that was only theoretical. We didn't really know that. Now we really know right. how, fra how fragile and thin some of these things are. Mickey Edwards, thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Yeah, Charlie, thanks. Great to talk to you. I appreciate it. Uh, check out uh, Mickey Edwards' pieces uh, in The Bulwark, including Mugged by Reality this week. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. We'll be back tomorrow, and we will do this all over again.